It was the end of a long day of ministry for Jesus, so long that he fell asleep on the back of a boat. And it says in Mark 4, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There was also other boats with them. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. He was so tired that in the midst of a storm, he's asleep with waves crashing on him. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! The wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. That's still our God. Linda's life, her family and her faith give testimony to that. And I don't know anything else to say than amen. 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 God, our Father, We are so very blessed to be able to call you Father, to know that you loved us enough to send your one and only Son, Jesus, to die a terrible death on a cruel cross to save us to eternal life. And because of Jesus' love for us, we are here today. And I know not everyone who's hearing my voice may be a follower of Christ yet, but we pray that they will be, that they would trust you as their Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. We're in the second of our sermons from our series out of the book of Titus, entitled For the Faith. And we'll skip our scripture memory verse for this month and move right along into our focal passage today, which is Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And if you're able to stand with me in the honor of reading God's word, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read these verses. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Verse 8, rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he may encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Thank you. You may be seated. An elder must be 
Before we talk about what an elder must be, you've got an introductory point on your sermon. That's your first point there, and that is a question. What is an elder anyway? And I'm going to ask you to keep a marker there in second or uh, in Titus and turn a few pages over in the right in your Bible, assuming you have a paper Bible or your app or whatever, and go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now, we go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 to help us learn something just in case you didn't already know it, and that's to see an interesting interplay between three different words, English, Greek. I'll read it for you, and then I'll explain it just quickly. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in His glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, this passage of Scripture in First Peter, written by Peter, is instructing the church, the elders in the church. Now, Elders, you notice, is one word in English. And then you notice there's another one, be shepherds of God's flock. That's actually the verb version of it, but a noun version is where we get the word pastor from. And then he says, as an overseer, that is where we get our word bishop from. So the Greek words are presbyteros, elder, like where Presbyterian comes from, episkopos, bishop, and then poimen, pastor. And the reason I bring out 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4 is to show us that these three words, even in the New Testament, are used interchangeably. We can make a much bigger case than this. Doctoral dissertations have been written about this. But the question next is, what do we call elders anyhow? What do you call an elder in a Southern Baptist church? Pastor. The three words are used interchangeably in other denominations or other churches because of their theology, set up structures with bishops, with elders, with presbyters, with pastors, those sort of things, but we call them pastors. Some Southern Baptist churches even have elder boards in which they may have teaching elders and administrative elders. So those words can be used interchangeably. But back over to Titus chapter 1, where we see that Paul, writing to his son in the ministry, Titus, as we introduced last week, is giving him an assignment. What was Titus' job? Well, very clearly, I left you on Crete to straighten out left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So is that one job? There were no elders, therefore you needed to straighten that out. Or is it two jobs? Well, you, we might easily say it could be either way, and again, books and theories on both, but I think it's two. Straighten out what was left unfinished is all the other stuff that's in the other sermons and in the other verses and the other chapters in the books of Titus we'll get in the weeks ahead as we study together. But today he's going to talk about the starting point, because when you put a pastor or an elder in a church, that pastor, that elder in that church ought to be able to carry on all these other things that Paul's going to lay out in the rest of the letter of Titus to Titus. So here's what you're going to do. But the question we have is, how would this happen? Titus is on the island of Crete. 
Now let's just paint the picture for us here. Crete is 156 miles long. How far is 156 miles? Is it that far to Kearney? Think about going down I-80, something like that, right? I didn't Google it. And it's either 7 miles to 30 miles north and south. It's 3,219 miles square. That's about the size of four or five eastern Nebraska counties. So think about not only Lancaster County, but our region of counties, and think about covering that sort of area. But think about it as if it's in the mountains of Colorado and not here in eastern Nebraska. Because in the middle of Crete was a spine of mountains, and Mount Ida was 8,200 feet tall. So this is not an easily accessible place. Most people lived around the coast, and imagine going around the coast without good roads and all that. And Titus has been aside, not a small job, appoint elders in the churches in Crete, but a huge job. Unfortunately, we don't even know how long Titus had there before Paul called him back for another appointment. But Titus has a big job. And beyond the geographic distances, there were racial or tribal differences on Crete already. Presumptively, Titus had to travel to each church or each town, identify the church, then quickly establish rapport with people and with the discernment by the Holy Spirit within him and the assignment by Paul and God himself, he had to decide who among this church of people has got the character to be elders which Paul lays out in the next verses. So your third major question on your outline today is, what about an elder's family? Now, Paul starts verse 6 with a, a summary idea of the character of an elder that you see again in verse 7. He says, an elder must be blameless. Blameless means to bring reproach, blame, or shame. I learned more about this in my previous church when I had a fellow pastor who had a moral failure, and I had to confront this dear brother of mine with this moral failure, and though we argued the point and argued what had happened, I said, brother, it comes down to the simple principle of Titus chapter 1, that you are a pastor, an elder, and you are no longer blameless. You have brought reproach, blame, and shame to the name of Jesus, to the church in this community. And you can no longer serve as a pastor in this church, in this community. And we asked him to leave. By God's grace and through a long process, he's been restored. He has an amazing ministry at a church in Texas now. And he and I are friends. But at that point, he can no longer be a pastor. Because he was no longer blameless. But as we move on and focus in on the main focus of verse 6, you see the qualifications of an elder as per his family. That elder or pastor must be the husband of but one wife. A one-woman man, it says literally in Greek. So is that one woman forever? Is that one woman at the right time? If she passed away previously and he was widowed and he got remarried, even divorced. That's the topic for another sermon. But look at what else it says. A man whose children believe. Now, that goes a little further than the similar list of qualifications Paul wrote to his other son in the ministry, Timothy. That parallel list is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Go home and read that as well. See where they're similar. See where they're different. Because Timothy doesn't specifically say that the children of a pastor must be believers, but Titus does here. And they are not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. 
Okay, um, this is the point where everybody looks at the pastor's children in the room and say, are they wild or disobedient? The householder kids over here, little Ben Chatwell or sweet Missouri. Um, No, the pastors in our church do not have children like that. Thanks be to Jesus since three of them are mine, right? But how do we judge this is the question. Paul outlines for Timothy, this is the qualification of an elder as you look at his family. How do you judge this? Well, it's clear in Scripture from Titus and 1 Timothy what we should look for in this. This blamelessness is a summary, but also about his wife and also about his children. Can a man be disqualified for ministry because his children are rebellious or crazy or sinful? Sounds like it. But how do we judge that? In what level of rebelliousness and in what age? That's a question for a church to decide, when a church needs to decide it, but we still need to know the scriptural principle and the guidelines, the boundaries that are set out, and they're right here in Titus. So let's move on along to our fourth major question today, and that is what an elder must not be. Paul gives a list of negative qualifications. Now, again, it starts with that summary And it says in verse 7, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, since he's entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. So he gives us a reason. He's entrusted with God's work. He's an overseer who manages God's household. In other words, he's a steward of the church, the householder, the family of faith. So here are the things you must look for that a pastor must not be. What does it say there again? That he must not be overbearing. He must not be overbearing. That, in other words, he needs to be the opposite. The word we use around here is otherish, right? Other than selfish. He must not be quick-tempered or hot-tempered, not soon to be angry. Those are self-explanatory, not drunken or addicted to wine or excessive drinker. Again, self-explanatory. This one I love. Not violent. The NAS says pugnacious. The reason the NAS says pugnacious is the Greek word means literally someone who uses his fists, a fighter with fists, right? You don't want a pastor who's got that kind of, I mean, George Foreman became a pastor after he was a boxer, but his character was different and changed, right? Not pursuing dishonest gain or fond of sordid gain, greedy for money. That pretty much counts out every prosperity gospel preacher on the face of the planet, right? And those who are pastors of this size church, and it looks like they can't move quick enough to that size church, to that size church, to that size church. Sometimes God moves a man that way because the man's talents and abilities, and you train and you grow in your talents and abilities. Other times, it's a guy chasing a dollar. I know because I'm friends with them, right? It demonstrates their character. God says this is the character you should not have in a pastor, which leads you to a question there. Which of these is most surprising to you? Of this list of negative characteristics that pastors should not have these things, which of them would you say, hmm, I hadn't thought about that one before? Or, wow, if that was me, that would be challenging. Or maybe you're going in, this is the reason I am not a pastor. Well, maybe there's a whole lot of other reasons, but that's one of them, right? Any pugnacious people out here who like to fight? But as we move along in verse 8, we get a 
list of positive commands of what an elder must be. An elder must be, in verse 8, he says, rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. These are almost the opposite of the other, but not quite, so we'll talk about them separately, right? Hospitable. Do you want to be around your pastor? Does he want you to be around him? Yes. At least for me. I mean, I think on hell and Pastor David uh, exhibit hospitality. That's kind of who we are. We love good things. We love good people. But your pastor should also be self-controlled. Other versions of Scripture say sensible or sober. Think of these things as hallmarks that you should look for in the character of an elder or a pastor. Upright, sensible, righteous, just. Can you discern this about a man that you do call or would call a pastor? It says holy or just, and that follows the last. Discipline, devoted, self-controlled. Are all these things tied together that you look at a guy and you say, yeah, this guy has got or has the potential to have the character of a pastor, to be a pastor or potentially be called to be a pastor, which leads us to our fifth sub-question there. Which of these is most challenging? When you think of the role of a pastor from your chair or your pew, as the case may be, which of them do you think would be most challenging for a pastor? Well, it depends on the pastor. It depends on his personality. What if it was you, which of them would be most challenging? I'm sure as I read the list, you kind of went, eh, yeah, I would struggle with that one. Or you went, I got it. If you got it, Have you considered maybe God's calling you to be a pastor? Because I would submit before you right now that in this room and online, there are men listening to me right now that God is called to be a pastor. Some of them know it. Some of them may not yet know it. But they've got the character in them and God is developing in them what they need so that one day they'll go, maybe God is calling me to a pastor. And all the rest of us will go, yes, God is calling you to be a pastor. We've seen it for months. We've seen it for years. How quickly can we train you up and send you out or see you rise to a different level of ministry, authority, and responsibility even within our church? And how cool would that be? It's been our privilege as a church, even as I've been your pastor for 15 years, to uh, ordain men to gospel ministry, to send them out, to license men to gospel ministry, to say, hey, we believe this guy's called and we're uh, looking towards ordaining him and sending out pastors and continuing to multiply the ministry. When I first arrived in South Africa as a missionary uh, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the day I arrived was the day that uh, another missionary lady, and forgive me, I don't remember her name, was retiring. It was her last day in Africa after 40 years as a missionary. So here I am, bleary-eyed, getting off the airplane, just arrived from the airport, and they threw a party, not for me, but for her, and they say, oh, by the way, welcome, Erin. I mean, she's been there 40 years. Her husband had died 15 years previously, and she said to the mission board, just because my husband died doesn't mean I'm not called anymore. I'm going back to Africa. When they first came to Africa, they went on a boat that took them weeks to get from the east coast of the United States to southern Africa. This missionary lady sat me down, and she said, young man, I need to talk to you. I said, yes, ma'am. She had the presence of personality that when she spoke, you listened. And she said, young man, your job as a missionary is to work yourself out of a job. I wasn't quite sure what she meant. You know, I was low on sleep. I was in another continent, people I hadn't met. 
But she was nice enough to explain. She says, you don't know how long you'll be in Africa, whether 40 years like me or two years like you're supposed to be for a journeyman. But you do know your time in Africa will come to an end. Therefore, every day you spend in Africa should be developing the people that live here so that they can do everything you do as soon as it is you leave. You raise up pastors. You raise up teachers. You send them out. And shouldn't we be about the same work? Calling out, sending out elders as a church, even if it's challenging. We move on to our sixth and final point, which asks the question, why are elders important? Why are they important? Well, that should be easy enough to understand, but Paul makes it clear to us in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, that he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that, you know, I love the so that, he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So there's two outcomes here. He's got to encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, both the positive and the negative, the offensive and the defensive. But listen to this verse in the King James. Certain verses just sound better in King James, don't they? Can I get an amen for the King James? It's this holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Gainsayers, they're looking for gain to twist the doctrine that is true, to make it something that's false so that people will think they've got it right and all the preachers of the gospel have got it wrong. What does this tell us? Your final question on your outline. How do we prepare elders is what it tells us. That yes, we ought to see the character of a man to say that he is called out to be an elder or a pastor But we also then, knowing what his job is to teach sound doctrine and refute those who go against it, must center on biblical instruction. That's why in our church from the very beginning, we teach in Sunday school, we teach in Awana. That's why we feature God's Word as a hallmark of our worship. And although we may sing for 25 minutes, we preach for 25 minutes every Sunday morning here. And that's why we send guys to Bible college and to seminary so they can be equipped to know God's Word systematically to teach God's Word that it ought to change their lives and it ought to change the lives of others who hear them. As it applies to us today, like I pointed out, we have three pastors, but we'll also have other pastors in the future. There'll be a day when I'm no longer here Or David's no longer here. Ron Hill's no longer here. Just as this church has seen pastors through its generation in the past, there'll be a day when you'll need to read these words and pray these words to help call another pastor. But there may be a day, even right now, where as we read these words, we need to be mindful of calling men out from this body to pastor right now. It's not guessing or assuming character, but having lived closely enough 
and having experienced one another's character, positives and the negatives, the good and the bads, the ups and the downs of life. And that's why we say our Sunday mornings are just the beginning and we need to do life together throughout the week. That's why we talk about a new way of doing discipleship through real life discipleship that you'll hear more in the weeks and months ahead as we start small groups like Sunday schools, but that have more time for people to be life on life with one another. That's why we do something like multiplication pipeline so that folks can go deeper in training as a follower of Jesus so they can learn better how to lead others to follow Jesus. But we do it all in relationship because sin loves darkness. Sin loves to hide. But confession leads to freedom. Repentance leads to blessing. And openness leads to a rich and abundant life. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you so much for your presence among us through your word and by your Holy Spirit today. We thank you for the testimonies that have been said and sung, the prayers that have been offered, and that we trust you with everything. So God, our Father, if there's any man here who you're calling out, even today, to put his hand up and say, I believe God's called me to pastor, and I want to continue to prepare in that, would it be your will that he'd present himself even today? God, we know there may be people hearing my voice, whether online or in this room, who've never trusted Jesus as their Savior, whether it's a child that's just now understood their sinfulness, or a teenager, or even an adult, when they make that commitment to follow Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord today. May we obey you, even now, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.